And turn with me, please, or listen on as I read now Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And let us pray together. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you once more that you have given us the gift of your word. Together with the gift of your son and the gift of your spirit. Father, these are indeed to us very precious gifts, and we confess to you that even now we need the help of your spirit as well as the help of the preaching in the spirit to fully uh, grasp and comprehend the truth of what you're telling us here. Lord, on the surface, it seems plain enough, but would you well, would you bring it? <clears throat> would you bring it to pass uh, in our experience? Would you bring it to bear upon our lives? Let us fully grasp it and believe it inwardly in the inner man and be transformed by it we ask in jesus name amen beginning here in chapter 8 verse 31 we have the beginning of a dramatic conclusion a triumphant conclusion this is something that paul is known for you may be uh, familiar i'm sure you are with how he ends in chapter 11 uh the He says very triumphantly, uh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God and of God and and on and on he goes. Something similar to that is found here. It's uh, a triumphant, exultant conclusion. One of the things that now that's verse 31 to the end. We're only beginning to consider it. One of the things that I want to try to understand here quite clearly is what exactly is Paul concluding? Now, there's many ways that you could answer that, but I think the best way to answer that is to say that he is concluding here at the end of chapter eight, not chapter eight, nor even chapters five through eight. But he is concluding now what he set out to do at the very beginning, and that is presenting to us the way of salvation, the gospel, which uh, of which he said, I'm not ashamed. I'm under obligation. I'm eager. I'm bound to declare this both to Jews and to Gentiles. For it is the power of God to save. And in this gospel is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. That's the gospel that Paul, well, that he loved and that he loved to preach. When he says, I'm not ashamed of it, he's really saying, I'm proud of it. It's my boast. I don't boast in myself, but I boast of this. I boast of the grace of God in justifying guilty sinners, even one as sinful as me. You know, Paul will say in another place, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet God showed grace to me. He would boast in the grace of God. Let a man boast. If he boasts in anything, let him boast in this. In God. 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 1. And so, beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, after his initial greetings, he sets forth the gospel. He sets forth the way of salvation for guilty sinners like you and me. And that is the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, who is... The propitiation for sins, he tells us in Romans chapter 3, when he died upon the cross. That's what he's concluding here. He's concluding 
this grand statement of the gospel. In chapter 11, that's not what he's concluding. He's concluding something else. He's concluding uh, the plan and the purpose of God. But here in chapter 8, he's summing up that point. He's, uh, he's amazed by it. It's also interesting to notice uh, the pastoral way in which he does it. It's so obvious to me, and, I, and I, I, I hope it's obvious to you as well, that in Paul's epistles, he's preaching. He's preaching to these Roman Christians. He's preaching to us. He's helping us to appropriate the very truths for ourselves, even as he was able to do uh, for himself, so that we would be able to say that I am what I am by the grace of God. And that if I boast in anything at all, it's the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud of it. I love it. I want to tell others of it. And yet we could say at the same time uh, that Paul is also obviously concluding all that he's said in chapters 5 through 8, and especially chapter 8. It's grander than that, but it also concludes that. And so if in chapters 1 through 8 he's setting forth the way of salvation, in chapters 5 through 8, and especially in chapter 8, he is describing the assurance that the gospel affords. Those who are saved ought to be sure. And in order to help them be sure, he concludes in this way. He does so by asking a series of questions, six questions in fact. Let me enumerate them. Number one, what shall we say to these things? Number two, if God is for us, who can be against us? Number three, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Number four, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Number five, who is he who condemns? And number six, who shall separate us from the love of God? Verses uh, 31 through 35, though it obviously goes beyond that to verse 39. Well, some of these find an answer. Some of these questions he answers. We'll see that. Others are rhetorical, which means... Merely to ask them is to suggest the answer of necessity. We'll see that as well. But before we begin to look at these questions, and we'll look at uh, two of them this morning, the first two, uh, no, excuse me, the first three in verses 31 and 32, uh, I would like to ask this question, and that is, what is the purpose of this form of reasoning? Why would the Apostle Paul in this sermon, let us call it, Ask all of these questions as he sums up this grand and mighty statement of the gospel. Well, one thing that I would notice about this is that this is something that Paul liked to do. If you if you consider the style of Paul as a preacher and the style of Paul as a writer, he liked to ask questions uh, and uh, and and asking questions is a very effective way of reasoning, in fact. So it was a not just something he liked to do. But it was a powerful tool of argumentation. So just to give you a couple examples in chapter three, verse nine, he says, what then are we better than they? Chapter four, verse one, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Now, if you looked at Romans and tried to list, I, I, well, I started to do it and I didn't get very far. You'll notice that he's doing it all throughout. As I say, this is one of Paul's favorite methods of argumentation. And if you are well adjusted and accustomed to Paul's method of reasoning in Romans, well, you'll come to this last section and 
You'll be at home in, in the thought world of Paul. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's, that's just what Paul has been doing throughout. But we should also realize why he employs this method and when he does so. He doesn't do so at random, but he's very strategic in doing so. What Paul likes to do is something like this. He sets forth a truth as clearly as he possibly can. But then even being as clear as he possibly could, he realizes that objections will be brought forth against the truth. He was aware of this. In fact, many of his epistles were written, and, and certainly it seems Romans, with all of the uh, objections that he's anticipating, it seems Romans was written with this in mind. He was aware that people were saying things. They were saying that Paul was saying things that he didn't say. And so he sets forth the objection in order to answer the objection. You see, that's stronger than just saying, here's the truth. He says, rather, here's the truth, and also let me answer any possible objections that you have. And having done so, having cleared the objections, well, the truth is uh, thus set forth in the clearest possible way. Well, what were the objections? He had been setting forth. Uh, the way of, of salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Uh, and, and, and then more narrowly, as I said in chapter 2, uh, or chap, excuse me, the second point in chapter 8, was the perseverance of the saints. The impossibility of falling away, given the reality of God's purpose. So, we could look at these six questions and enumerate four possible objections to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, this is a list which I'm borrowing from Martin Lloyd-Jones. First, in verse 31, he's anticipating this objection. Is there any power which opposes us and God great enough to thwart his purpose? We've seen his purpose set forth in verses 29 through 30. The question is, can anyone overturn or overthrow the purpose of God? That's the first objection, which he deals with in, in verse 31. Verse 32, can God ever go back on his love? We see that God loves us, but could he ever change his mind? Number three, can someone successfully lay a charge against us, which will ultimately succeed in condemning us or uh, overturn God's verdict, proving we were sinners after all and not just? And number four. Is it possible, given our own weakness, that we should fail to obtain the glory promised to us? Those four objections Paul is dealing with here. We will deal with the first two in this first sermon. And I'll remind you of, the, uh, of these objections in future sermons. Uh, but, but looking at what Paul is saying like that, and, and thus what I am saying like that, I would state my purpose like this, which is Paul's purpose. In all of this, I would persuade the doubting heart, the one who still doubts the purpose of God, the one who still doubts the love of God, the Christian who still doubts his own salvation, who lacks assurance. In other words, in all of this, I would persuade you as Paul would persuade you and as God would persuade you. That if you are a Christian, that you, you are entitled to be sure and that you really ought never to doubt it again. Well, begin with the first question as the first point. 
What then shall we say to these things? Again, we notice the similarity to what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? It's just the same thought exactly. If we ask the question, what things? He says these things. Well, again, I would include everything that he's been saying about the gospel since chapter 1, verse 14. These things are the things of the gospel. And the force of the question then, what then shall we say is, what are we to conclude at this point? Having set forth with such wonderful force and clarity the doctrine of salvation broadly and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints more narrowly in chapter 8, shall any say it is not so? Shall any claim that a sinner is not saved solely by the grace of God? Shall any claim that man is saved by works and not by faith? Shall any... Uh, suggests that the believer might fall away at last from grace. I think that last question is really the essence of what he's asking here. If you look at every objection he's dealing with, that's what he's asking. He's saying, well, is it possible? Is there anyone who would say, do I even find the suggestion in my own heart that I might fall away at last into a state of perdition, either that I would turn away from God or that God would turn away from me? Is the thing possible? Shall we really say it or even think it? Shall we be cast into a state of doubt when God offers up this mighty assurance? Shall any doubt that what the apostle says is really so? Or we could say along with John Murray, what is our response to be? What shall we say? What's our response? I think of myself here as a preacher. At times, I will set forth the doctrine and and. Not knowing what to say beyond that. I I just ask you, well, what do you say to that? What's your response? What do you think of that? That's that's in essence what Paul is doing. Well, what shall we say? And having asked that first question, it leads to another question as a second point. And that is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31b. Now, he's asking a question. This is indeed a rhetorical question. To ask it is to suggest the answer. Notice that he is not expressing the slightest trace of doubt. In fact, uh, there are many in the commentaries, and I agree with them, who translate the word uh, if as since. Uh, The force of the thought, therefore, being since God is for us, who can be against us? The question, therefore, is not if God is for us, it's rather who can be against us. You see, that's the force of the question. And in doing so, he is expressing his great confidence in the very truths we've considered. Yes, and they lead a man to confidently say, the man who's taken these things to heart, if God is for us, who can be against us? But let us see when a man says that, that he's really saying two things. He's saying first... That there are many who are against us. You see, Paul is not saying you you could you could hear him saying this, although it wouldn't make any sense of what he's saying here or later in the passage or elsewhere. You could hear him saying, because God is for us, none are against us. The Christian doesn't have any enemies. The reality is uh, the furthest thing. That's the furthest thing from the truth. The truth is this. The Christian is someone who is surrounded By enemies, enemies, let us see and let us admit who are all far too strong for us. What kind of enemies am I talking about? 
Well, I, I, let me read what Robert Haldane says. He's a, he's a few lines I want to share with you. I thought this one might be worth sharing. He says, believers are, ra- uh, or excuse me, those who are against believers. Uh, no, let me correct myself one, one more time. There is, he says, arrayed against believers, a formidable host composed of many powerful enemies. There are Satan and all his wicked spirits. There are the world and indwelling sin. There are all sufferings and death itself. How could believers themselves withstand the power of such antagonists? Now look at the list that that Haldane gave. And I I think it's a very it's a very useful way of summarizing the question. uh, Who can be against us? Let us see that many are against us. Let us see in light of the teaching of chapter 8 that there there are all the things that we suffer. There is the enemy who is the accuser of the brethren. There are uh, all of his uh, demonic hordes and hosts who conspire against believers. There are the enemies that we find throughout the world. The world is against believers. That's something I hope uh, to elaborate upon in the evening sermon. But perhaps the greatest enemy of the believer is found in chapter 7, and that's indwelling sin. What I mean is that I am my own greatest enemy. The one who poses the greatest threat to my own perseverance, to my own, as Peter says, triumphal entry into the kingdom at last, is myself. The Christian is someone who is surrounded by formidable foes, and all of them, together, as well as all of them individually, are too strong for one as weak as we. Let the believer never think, as Peter thought, that I am stronger than they, for I am not. I am weak, I am needy. As Luther says, we are beggars. This is true. The believer is far too weak not only to oppose any one of these for a single moment, let alone the entirety of an entire lifetime until he comes at last to obtain what he seeks. And surely Paul is not interested in challenging this thought as though he is saying the believer has no enemies. No, he's saying the believer has many enemies. In fact, he enumerates them in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famineness or nakedness or peril or sword? I think I just counted seven enemies that he lists right there. No, the thought isn't that we have no enemies. The thought is rather given this reality. That nonetheless, none can harm us. None can, for all of their power, all of their might, all of their malice, all that they conspire to do against us, none can ever rob us of the slightest thing that God has purposed for us in Christ Jesus. None can injure us. None can keep us from obtaining what we seek. Because God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is there any way to question this now, seeing all that he said about the believer, all that is true of him in Christ? You see, that's a very fitting way to summarize chapters one through eight, but especially all that he said in chapter eight. If if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The spirit is assuring you of your sonship. He's stirring up the grace of faith, the grace of hope. He is causing you to persevere unto the end. He's justified you. He's sanctifying you. He will glorify you. He set his love upon you from all eternity. 
you, you, you enumerate all of that and you set it against the list of our fo- foes. And, well, you could say two things. You would say first how clear it is and how foolish I would be ever to question that God is for me. It's so obvious. There's no way to question it. You see, Paul is not questioning that. He's assuming it. He's assuming it's a point that's been settled not only in the epistle, but in the heart of the believer. The believer is someone who can say, God is for me. God is for the Christian. And then on the basis of that assumption, he, along with all of us, ought to ask, well, then who can be against us? Again, I say, my question is not whether God is for me. That I see clearly. My question is, who can be against me? Do you realize that a Christian is someone with God on his side? The Christian is someone uh, about whom it is said or, or, or to whom God says, as he said often in the Old Testament, fear not, for I am with you. That's what God says to every one of us in his word. The thought then can be expressed like this. Not that none are against the Christian, but that none can succeed. This is this is how Robert Haldane puts it. This is the second quote I wanted to share with you. He says, no truth can be more evident than this, that although we have innumerable enemies and are ourselves utter weakness, yet if God before us, nothing can be so against us as to finally injure us. I like that way of putting it very much. You see. You might find that there are things like sin or enemies in the world which do harm you in a temporal sense. Who can deny that? Who can live the Christian life for any amount of time and not bear some of the scars uh, that we all bear as a result of the battles we fought? But none of them can harm us in the ultimate final sense. None of them can undo the truth that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to purpose, even and especially The worst things, as Thomas Watson says, are enemies. You see, even they are made in the purpose of God to bring about our final glorification with Christ in the heavenlies. And if that is true, if even the worst things, if even our enemies who are against us are actually in the plan of God working for our good, the question then becomes... Well, as he says here, if God is for us, who could be against us? Or looking more narrowly at our enemies, of what account is their opposition? Obviously, it amounts to nothing at all. If God is for us, fighting for us, seeing to our salvation, bringing it to its mighty conclusion, even as he purposed in his son from all eternity. Yes, and if God is for us in this way, none Who oppose us or him shall ever succeed in thwarting his great purpose for us. For none is greater than God. Do you see that? It's so simple. And so the first main difficulty or objection is answered in the plainest of terms. Is any power which opposes us great enough to thwart the purpose of God? Clearly not. For to oppose his purpose is not to oppose us. It's to oppose him. It's not a question of whether we want to be saved. You see, that's something that you might easily overturn. We would overturn it ourselves. It's a question of whether he wants us to be saved. And because it's something he wants, to oppose that is to oppose him. And there's no one stronger than God. Of course, again, we admit we are very weak. 
and left to ourselves, we would surely uh, we would surely not stand a single second in the fight. The fight is bitter and strong. It wears us down. It makes us feel at times that we're defeated. And yet, to our own surprise and amazement, what we find as Christian people is that we go on. The fight rages on, and yet we go on. Uh, does that not in itself not, uh, does that not amaze you? Does it not amaze you to see, as a Christian, simply that you're still standing? Not only are we standing and fighting, but we're prevailing. Verse 37, the Apostle Paul says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, we're not only standing, but we're progressing. That's not always clear in the short term, but just take a moment. If, again, if you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time and ponder what God has done through you. Think about the strides that you have made in your sanctification, in your faith, in the Christian life. And realize that though this vast array of enemies uh, conspire against you, the amazing thing is despite your weakness, you are progressing, you're advancing, you're conquering. How so? Well, not in yourself, you see, but through him who loved us. It's just another way of stating the same thing. If God is for us, who can be against us? God's in the fight. He's fighting for us. He's the one who's overcoming our enemies. He's the one who's causing us to prevail. He's the one who makes us conquerors. He's for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Before I go on to the next thought, I just ask you this. Have you got a hold of this truth? Has it ever occurred to you in the midst of the fight when you are discouraged and beaten down that God is for the Christian, which means that God is for you. He's fighting for you. And that is what assures you of success always. If God is for us, who can be against us? But that leads to another potential objection. Which is stated in verse 32. It ought to be plain. I, I, I can't imagine anyone would dispute this fact. It's too obvious to refute. And that is that none is stronger than God. And that if God should be for the Christian, then none can be against him. Not finally, not ultimately. There isn't any possibility that any of the foes of this world or even the principalities and powers of darkness should be strong enough to overcome he whom God is for. And yet I'm left with this second objection. And in many ways, I think this is the objection that we tend to have. This gets at the heart of the doctrine of assurance, and that is, what if God should go back on his love? You see, in other words, I'm convinced of this, that if God is for me, none can be against me. But what if he should cease to be for me? And is there any way for me to be sure that he won't? Oh, yes, I realize as long as he's for me, I am saved. But how shall I know? How shall I be sure that he will always be for me? And that's the question or the objection that he deals with in verse 32. He makes once again, as he did in the second part of verse 31, a confident statement of assurance by asking a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Again, it's the same way of reasoning. He's not questioning whether God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That much is settled. 
It is rather on the basis of that assumption. The question that we have is, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's saying this, look at what God has already done. He's given us the gift of his son. And then once we see that, we ought to ask ourselves this question with respect to the future. And really, that is the question that we have when it comes to the doctrine of perseverance. I see what is true of me now. I see what God has done in the past. My question does not concern those things. It's what of the future? How can I be sure that I'll make it to the end? How can I be sure that God will not go back? Turn his back on me. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? That's how Paul asked the question. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has already done the greatest thing, or the greater thing rather, given us the gift of his son, the question is, how shall he fail to do the lesser? It's another rhetorical question. To ask the question is to suggest the answer. If God has done the greater, he will do the lesser. Although, I think we could put the statement uh, in an even stronger form. I don't think it's simply an argument from the greater to the lesser. I think it is rather an argument from the greatest to the lesser. And in fact... I accidentally said that when I when I first mentioned the the form of argumentation, an argument from the greatest to the lesser. The thought is, and this is the true argument of the verses or of the verse, rather, if God has already done the greatest thing he could possibly do. Then how will he fail to do anything less than that? Murray speaks of this, John Murray speaks of this as the unthinkableness of the opposite. Should God give us the gift of his son, the greatest gift he could possibly give, and then fail to give us all that was meant for us to enjoy by that gift? Would Christ, the son of God, shed his blood and then stop there? Would God hand over his son for our sins, dying that awful death on the tree, only to condemn us? In the end, after all, you see, that's the way the doubting heart reasons. And Paul's whole point here is uh, to enable us to see the folly, to demolish this objection once and for all so, so that we never think it again. So that we as believers never again for a single moment doubt that God will love us to the end. Look at the terms that he uses, and you'll see this. Look at what God did for us in giving his son. He didn't spare him. That's the first thing he said. He who did not spare his own son. His own son. That's the one he didn't spare. The one who dwelt in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. The only begotten Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. The one on whom the love of the Father resides From all eternity. It was he and none other. Whom he did not spare. What does he mean by this language? It's very striking. And illustrative language. He's speaking of the cross. And he's saying this. He did not spare him a single stroke. That was due to us for sin. He might have spared him. Let us acknowledge that. He might have. There was no necessity that compelled him to do this. And yet he did it. You think of Isaac. Isaac was laid on the rock. And yet what did God do? God spared him. And yet Christ was laid and nailed upon the tree. And God didn't spare him. Consider the punishment inflicted upon him. 
Not for the sins of a single lifetime committed by a single person. That would be awful enough. Awful enough. In some sense, we might imagine for God in his great love for the son to spare him. But that isn't what God did to the son. That's not what transpired on the cross. There we read in Isaiah that the father was pleased to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. And to inflict upon him the punishment that was due, again, not for the sins of a single lifetime committed by an individual, but the sins of us all. This is how he puts it in Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put to grief. What was the result of this? Not sparing of the son, but laying on him the iniquity of us all. Well, isn't it obvious? Can't we see and say of ourselves that we were spared? We were spared the punishment due to us. What ought to have been inflicted upon us for our sin was inflicted on him in order that we might be spared. Yes, and Paul goes on to state positively what he stated negatively. God in not sparing his son Delivered him up for us all. It's very similar to what Peter says in the Pentecost sermon. Peter chapter or or, or Luke chapter 2 verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. You see it was God himself who did this. It was God himself who determined to do this. What did he determine to do? He determined to deliver his own son into the hands of sinners, knowing that in doing so they would lay hands on him and they would kill him. And thereby inflict upon him the wages of sin due to us. And what Paul concludes from this is what we ought to conclude from this. Is that this is a staggering, immeasurable, inexpressible act of love. We look at this and we say, how can I comprehend an act of love like this? It's beyond, well, it's beyond words. It's beyond expression. It's something that I can try to measure, but I can't. And, well, if I want to, let's say I said to myself, I I want to try to measure this love. Well, the only way you can try to measure it is by going to the cross. And when you go to, to the cross there, you'll see the measure of God's love. You'll see... To your own amazement, though it was men who laid their hands upon the son, that God himself delivered him into their hands. You will see God himself acting, God inflicting the punishment, God not sparing the son, God pouring out the wrath which was due to sin for us upon him, upon his own son. You will see God saving sinners condemned to die. You'll see God sparing them. Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it like this. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, uh, that uh, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8 encapsulates the whole thought, this staggering inexpressible act of love. This is how God expresses his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What we see is the love of God. What we see is the extent of the love of God. But the last thing I would say about this love is that it is done freely. God gave his son freely. You see, when Paul says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's also suggesting that he had freely given the son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the gift of God. How does he give it? Not as wages which are due or the due of our wages, but rather freely as a gift. Out of his own love for us, seeing nothing in us to commend us or suggest us to him as worthy recipients of such love. He gives the gift of his son. He doesn't spare him, but he delivers him up for us all. He does so freely. He fetches the reason from his own heart. There's no other reason. According to his good pleasure, the purpose of his will, Ephesians chapter 1. Yes, and if he did this for us freely, then surely it is not unreasonable to suppose Indeed, it is absolutely necessary to assert that if he did all this freely for us. Surely he will also freely with him give us all things. He's already given the greatest gift of all, even his own son. Would he now fail to do less? Would he now waste a single drop of that precious blood? Would God send his son to die for us? To endure all the pain and shame on the cross due to us for sin and then fail to give us all that is necessary for our salvation as purchased and secured by that blood. Do you see that that suggestion is not only unthinkable, but that it is monstrous? It's monstrous to suggest that God would give the gift of his son or that the son himself should uh, suffer the pain and the shame of the cross Only for us to be condemned in the end. Only for our salvation to be lost. To think that, to suggest that, to say that, in reality is to make light of what he was doing at the cross. It is a total failure to grasp the true significance of the gift of God's son upon the cross. To suggest that Christ the Son would shed his blood and yet any one of us would be lost. It is a failure to grasp the love of God. Plain and simple. Because if we did understand the love of God. And the extent or the measure of the love of God as expressed on the cross. Well then we would never doubt it again. We would say every benefit secured by his precious blood will surely be ours. To the very end, none will be lost. And if God has loved us like this, then surely he will never cease to love us. Do you see that? Are you able to reason thus with your heart? Do you see that God couldn't go this far and then go back? And so it comes to this. I speak again to the person who lacks assurance. I ask you, do you lack assurance? And if you lack assurance, 
Do you know where to find it? Do you know where to look and to find an assurance which can never be shaken? The Apostle Paul says, look here on Calvary's hill. See what God is doing there. There you will see the gift of God. You will see the love of God which cannot fail. Oh, and he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. You will say, how shall he not with us or with him rather also freely give us all things. Amen. And let us come now to the table.